So some of you are probably wondering what on earth happened to this right here. And I have a secret to tell you not very many people know, but just a little bit over a week ago, I fell into a boiling vat of radioactive waste. And I'm just waiting for my superhero parents, that's all. Um, now, you know, the truth is, you know, they discovered some precancerous cells, and so I've got to put the stuff on. Um, I have exactly three more days of application, and then I'm done. And I'm so grateful for that. I realized, though, that it was really starting to look bad when one morning this past week, my wife came down to me, and she looked at me and said, Oh, Michael, does your face hurt? And I thought, no way, this is a setup. Uh-uh, I'm not answering that. My wife is not a sarcastic woman, but I realized that's when it was really bad. I'm grateful for when it will be done. Um, the truth is, though, that cancer is, is serious. A number of us, I mean, a small church like ours, a number of us have been battling with cancer. Cancer is something that can kill. And I want to tell you, and, and let me just stretch an analogy out here for us, but sin is just like that. Sin kills. Sin has only one remedy, and that is the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Many times in the New Testament, the Bible equates sin with this concept of darkness. And I want us to see a few things about this darkness in the, the cross and the resurrection story. So turn with me to Matthew 27. But see, Jesus came to rescue us from this darkness. And scripture says that the darkness has not overcome him. He is the light. So I want us to see the light. I want us to see the gospel story in this scripture passage, Matthew 27. And then we're going to read several verses from Matthew 28. Are you there with me? Matthew 27. We're going to start with verse 45. It says, from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, darkness came over all of the land. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a stick, and ordered it to be given to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. The tombs broke open and the bodies, listen to this church, the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs, and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. And when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the Son of God. In Matthew 28, verse 1, after the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb, excuse me, went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, 
rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. I think most of us are familiar with this story where Jesus, an innocent man, and of course we know that he's not just a man, but he is God who has now come in the flesh, John chapter 1. And now he is willing to go to the cross He had asked the Father the night before, if it's your will, if it's possible, take this cup from me. And that cup, of course, being the cup Jeremiah the prophet spoke of, being the cup of God's wrath, his just punishment upon mankind's sin. And if there's any way, God, take this cup from me, because Jesus was about to take upon himself the just judgment, God's just wrath for your sin and for my sin. That's what he was going to do on the cross. He was going to receive my punishment. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. That word was prophesied 700 years before the cross. And so here is Jesus, and he knows his destiny. He knows the very purpose for why he has come to this earth. And it is this moment on the cross. And as he's hanging there from the ninth hour until the sixth hour. Now, that's only six hours. And so you're aware, most people who would be crucified on a cross like this, it would take as much as three days for them to suffocate. That's generally how they would die. And eventually their legs would become so weary they could not push themselves up and gasp another breath. And as they would hang down again, they would suffocate. They could not breathe. Jesus, six hours. Because the wrath that you and I deserve was poured out on him. Now, it tells us, the text tells us that around noon, it says the world became dark. The world became dark, enveloped in darkness for three hours. When we look at this, we we need to realize this isn't something that just accidentally happened. It was actually prophesied about several hundred years before by the prophet Amos. Now, you don't have to turn there, but in Amos chapter 8, this is what it says. It says, in that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun, listen how specific this is. I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn their religious feasts into morning. Now, When did Jesus die? What festival did Jesus die in? The the Passover. That's right. That is the most significant, most important Jewish festival that they celebrate in the course of the year. Passover. That's when they were delivered from the hand of Pharaoh out of Egypt, which is a symbol of slavery, and now brought into the promised land. Representing the very promises of God and this newness of life. And and so he says, I will turn their religious feasts into mourning and all your singing into weeping. I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. Listen to this. Several hundred years before Christ died on this cross and darkness covered the land, 
for three hours. He says, I will make that time like mourning for an only son. And the end of it, like a bitter day. Interesting he would use that analogy, like the mourning of an only son. Now, Jesus physically was not an only son. He actually had numerous brothers and sisters that Mary and Joseph birthed. But I think each of us know that that only son is not referring to Joseph and Mary, but rather God the Father. Because Scripture says, John 3.16, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. So here's a prophecy several hundred years before this event, and it's very clear. There's going to be darkness. It's going to come on the land at noon. It could have said nine in the morning or three in the afternoon. At noon, it's going to happen during a religious festival, which would be the Passover, the most significant of all Jewish festivals, and it would be, there would be mourning there as for an only son. It could have said for the loss of a bride or a groom or something tragic, but it is very specific. An only son. Not just a son, an only son. And so we have here the, the, a prophetic word several hundred years before the cross, and it is now fulfilled on this day. I want us also to see that not only was this darkness prophesied about, but it is historically recorded. Now, there are two gentlemen in history that we can learn about. And these people were not Christians in any way. The first one is a gentleman by the name of Thallus. He was a Greek historian. He wrote around, very specifically, history says, 52 AD. Now, we don't have any of his recordings, but we do have uh, a gentleman who wrote about him about 150 years later, Julius Africanus. And he, he quotes him, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read this to you. And he says, On the whole world there pressed a most fearful darkness, and the rocks were rent by an earthquake, and many places in Judea and other districts were thrown down. This darkness, this is what Africanus says, this darkness Thallus, in the third book of his history, calls, and it appears to me without reason, an eclipse of the sun. And so... In 52 AD, only about 20 years after Jesus died on the cross, a Greek historian who is not a Christian talks about this darkness and that it happened during the day and that there was an earthquake. And he, he gives an explanation because how does darkness happen in the middle of a day? He says it was, a, it was an eclipse of the sun. Now, if you know how eclipses work, you know that an eclipse happens when the moon moves in front of the sun. However, during the Passover, and the Jews are very purposeful in this, Passover happens when there's a full moon. How, how do we have a full moon? What's the science behind that? The, full, the moon is on the opposite side of the earth, and that's how we have a full moon. For an eclipse, it is between the earth and the sun. For this reason... Julius Africanus, who, by the way, is a historian, but he's a Christian, he says, this doesn't make any sense. There's no way that you can explain this darkness scientifically. And so that's why he takes issue with him. 
Well, there's another gentleman. He actually wrote a little bit later. His name is Phlegon, and he was a Greek historian. He wrote around 137 AD. He says in the fourth year of the 202nd Olympiad, which would be a roughly around 33 AD, he says there was the greatest eclipse of the sun. That's how he explained it. And that it came, and it became night in the sixth hour of the day, which would be at noon, according to Roman reckoning. Now, listen to this. So that the stars even appeared in the heavens. Now, can I ask you, I'm going to finish this quote later, but can I ask you, how many of you have ever witnessed a uh, darkness in the middle of the day by an eclipse of the sun? How many of you have ever seen that? Okay. All right. Some of you have seen a partial eclipse, and even in a total eclipse, you can still see the, uh, what, what is it, the umbra or penumbra or the, yeah, whatever that's called. And you can see the outline of the sun, and it's not complete darkness. And you never can see the stars of the heavens. Now, Justin Martyr is arguing with uh, some people who are opposing the gospel uh, Justin Martyr is an apologist. That doesn't mean he goes around apologizing for what he believes, but rather that he defends what he believes. And Justin Martyr says, hey, you know what? Look in the annals of, uh, of, of the, uh, the king and check to see if this is not true because even Pilate himself tells us about this darkness. And there is, whether it is the actual letter or not, that we have discovered, but there is a letter supposedly by Pilate, and it too in it talks about Jesus dying on the cross, that he wrote this letter to Caesar to justify his actions, but he describes what happens that day, and in the very same words as Phlegon, he says you could see the stars at night. Is that not amazing? Or what? what caused this darkness? This darkness could not have been a total eclipse of the sun. It was a supernatural occurrence prophesied hundreds of years ago by the prophet Amos. And now it is fulfilled on this amazing day. For three hours, it was dark. Now, here's my question to you. Look in your Bibles. But when did Jesus die? In those three hours, when did Jesus die? Right at the end. Right at the end of those three hours. At the end of the three hours, Jesus died, and within minutes, not hours, but within minutes, the sun came out. It was light again, because there was only darkness for three hours, from 12 to 3. Jesus died around the, the ninth hour, which would be about 3. And so within minutes after his death, it became light again. Now hold on to that thought. What else happened? Look in your text there. What else happened during this time in which Jesus died? And he, he, he had just cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A very significant comment. And, and it's actually Jesus quoting from Psalm 22, verse 1. But here, the Father has placed the sins of the world. He's placed your sins. He placed my sins on his son, Jesus. And he was actually punishing his son, Jesus, for us in our place, so that we would not have to suffer in hell, but we'd be able to spend eternity with him and have this amazing life that begins at the moment of our conversion. This is why he did it. The father could not even look upon his son. See it this way. At that moment, the father rejected his son. You see that? 
And here's the irony of it all. He accepts the sacrifice of his son, but he rejects his son who became sin for me. Could not look upon him. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And moments later, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he dies. It says at that moment, look at your text there, at that moment, several things happen. Blows our minds. Not only was there darkness, and, at the, and when he, after he died, it became light again, but it says that, there, that the temple curtain, veil, was torn in two from top to bottom. It says also that there was an earthquake. I want you to write that, underline that there was an earthquake there. And it says that it was so powerful, the rocks were broken open. And I imagine that some of those rocks were the tombstones, you know, the stones rolled in front of the tombs. And so they broke open. And the people inside of some of those tombs walked out. Would that not freak you out? And then it says here, the centurion, he sees all of this happening. Now, I want to be careful, all of this happening. He did not see the veil being torn. He did not see the dead people coming out of the tombs. What he did see was he saw this darkness. He saw that at the moment that Jesus died, there was an earthquake. And that for him just in his understanding, religious or not, he, he knew something significant had just now happened. And he says, surely this man was the son of God. Let's go back to that veil for a moment. Many people make a big deal, and Josephus wrote that it was a hand breadth, which would be about four inches thick. Later in the, the Talmud, a, a, a book written by Jewish rabbis, they say, well, he was exaggerating a little bit. So we don't know the truth of it all, to be honest with you. But that honestly is not the point here. They say, well, th the main point is that an earthquake could not rip it. Well, true, it wouldn't have ripped it. We, and it was not ripped from the bottom up, but it was ripped from the top down. And I think Matthew makes a big deal about it. He's the only one, by the way, who records the, this tearing of the veil. And, and the reason why he does this is because he wants us to see that it, it was God himself opening the way. Do you remember what was on the other side of that veil? It was that place that the high priest was allowed only once a year, and that by blood. And he went in there because that is where the very presence of God was. And scripture says that the Ark of the Covenant was right there. And the, the atonement cover with the two angels, that is where God sat. That is where his presence was. When the high priest went in, he had to go in with a censer, okay? And the censer was lit so that it created smoke. And the reason why, the Old Testament tells us, was so that he would not view the presence of God. It would be veiled in that smoke. The very presence of God was sacred. The very presence, no man looked upon God anymore. 
I want us to see that the, the, the Jew himself, the Hebrew, revered the most holy place. Only the high priest and that once a year by blood would ever go back there. Why? Because that is where God dwelt. That was the very presence of God. Now, here's something that I don't completely understand. But for whatever reason, I assume God was still there because the Ark of the Covenant was not. I don't know if you were aware of that. Because it's Nebuchadnezzar in about 605 B.C. came. They removed the, the Ark. And um, if you want to watch Raiders of the Lost Ark, I'm not sure how close to his, history or, or biblical accuracy that is. But the truth is, it wasn't there for over 600 years. And yet, the importance that Matthew wants to make of this is that God himself opened the way for you and me now to come into the very presence of God. The book of Hebrews is all about that. That, the, that there's no more need for sacrifices of animals. It is the one-time sacrifice of Jesus himself. And now we stand boldly before the throne of grace. We now come into the Holy of Holies by the blood of Jesus Christ. And what I, I, want to, I want you to see then, all of this happened at the very end of this three-hour time of darkness. Now let's go to the resurrection. That was Sunday afternoon, 3 o'clock p.m. And now, Sunday morning... Mary Magdalene, and it records only one other Mary here, but let's realize Luke talks about many other people. And you know, for some reason, there are so many different Marys. Mary, son of, you know, th this person had this son and so on. And it's like Mary, the mother of Joseph, and Mary, the mother of James the Less. And you get confused. Well, how many Marys are there? And Mary Magdalene, and my goodness. But the truth is, yeah, there were a lot of them named Mary. So here they are, and they're on the way to the tomb. John chapter 20, verse 1, says that Mary Magdalene was on her way to the tomb, and it was still dark. I realize that some critics who love to try and think they have discovered problems or errors in the Bible say, well, see, that contradicts what Matthew says, because it says it was dawn. And actually, in Mark, it says it was light. Well, here's what we do know. Mary started off for the tomb. However long it took her, it could have taken her half an hour to get to the tomb. But when she started out, it was dark. When she arrived at the tomb, guess what? It was light. Now, but here's my point. On her way to the tomb, for the most part, it was dark. By the time she arrives at the tomb, what has happened? They're talking about, you know, who's going to roll the stone away? I mean, this is a strong, it's, it's a big stone that you had to look down, bend over to look inside of it. So it was, it was probably a stone at least this high and possibly up to six feet. It was in a groove. It was generally about a foot or more thick. And to roll that out of the groove took a lot of strength. And the women weren't about that. So who's going to move this stone? Matthew tells us. And I'm setting you up to see that what the angel does before they arrive when it's now light occurred when it was dark. When it was dark, there was an earthquake. Matthew records only two earthquakes in the Gospels. One when Jesus died and another when he rose from the dead. 
both of which occurred when it was dark. So the angel, he now comes and he rolls the stone away at right at or right after the earthquake and he sits upon the sits on this gravestone and and the four roman soldiers fall down as if they were dead fainted slain in the spirit whatever terminology you want to use they are down for the count now you've seen many of you how many of you've seen the movie risen awesome i love that movie very cool Make-believe story understood by the centurion who oversees Jesus' death and who says, surely this was the Son of God. And he then, in this story, experiences the resurrected Christ, sees him, blows his mind. The angel appears on this stone, and these guys fall down like, whoa, what is going on here? I'm sure when they wake up, they run for their lives. By that time, though, they're gone. Mary and the other Marys and this other Mary and some other Mary and Salome and some others who were gathered there on their way to the, they, the stone has been rolled away. When they arrive, they do not see the angel sitting on the stone. You need to take Matthew Pair it with some of the other Gospels because Matthew leaves the angel on the stone and the guys on the floor, and that's not how the ladies approached the tomb. The soldiers were not laying on the floor. They were gone. The angel is no longer sitting on the stone. The other Gospels tell us they are actually, there's actually two of them inside the tomb. Mary sees the stone rolled away, and she just takes off. She doesn't even enter. If she enters the tomb, she looks inside, and then she takes off. And that's why she doesn't know about the the angel's appearance. And the angel says, look, come and see where they have laid him because he is no longer dead. Let me share with you this. The angel did not roll the stone away to let Jesus out, but to let the witnesses in. You see, Jesus, when he first appears to his disciples, do you remember what the setting was? In an upper room, the doors were locked, and Jesus suddenly appears. Hey, guys, when Jesus was raised from the dead in his resurrection body, he could have walked right through that stone. He didn't need an angel to move it. You see, Jesus, the, the angel didn't move the stone to let Jesus out. He moved the stone to let the women in to be able to see Jesus is no longer dead. He's been raised from the dead. Let me also say this to you. The veil of the temple was not torn to let God out, but to let us in. The scriptures pull together these concepts of the cross and the resurrection. And for Matthew, he does it by talking about the darkness and the earthquake. And at the end of the darkness on Friday afternoon, Jesus died and the veil of the temple was torn. Two days, three days later, technically Friday, Saturday, Sunday, how the Jews reckon their days can be confusing sometimes. But Sunday morning, at the end of the darkness, Jesus rose from the dead. 
The stone is now rolled away, and the ladies come in, and they see Jesus is no longer dead. Scripture makes a big deal about pairing the cross with the resurrection. There was darkness, there was an earthquake, and something amazing happened on Friday, Jesus' death, and the veil torn. On Sunday, Jesus was raised from the dead. So what is the big deal? Now, I want to just tell you, and, and, and I'm going to use the darkness as a metaphor right now, but when I was lost, and, and I grew up in a, in a, a church, people. I, I, my dad was a choir director. I grew up in a very traditional church. I had heard the gospel many, many times, but it wasn't until I was 14, which honestly is a young age, but until I was 14, then it finally dawned on me, Jesus died for my sins. When he hung on the cross, he was paying for my sins. My penalty was upon him. The punishment he received, that's what I should have, that's what I deserve, that's what I should have gotten. And when I was 14, that's when I chose to believe in Jesus Christ. That's when I surrendered to him. Jesus then came into my darkness, into my sin, into my lostness. Just as he came into your lostness and your darkness to set you free by the cross and also by the resurrection. And I mentioned to you several weeks ago that a resurrectionless cross has no power. If Jesus has simply died on the cross and he never rose from the dead, what is that for you? Where's the power in that? I mean, animals did that. But you see, my Jesus... He conquered sin and death. You must see these together. Because we sinned, we now deserve death. Jesus took care of all of that for us. So a resurrectionless cross has no power. And a crossless resurrection has no purpose. If Jesus never died for your sins, why would he be raised from the dead? except to show you that there is a way into the very presence of God. But something must happen first. Jesus had to die for my sins and yours. Then the, the veil of the temple could be torn in two. Can I ask you, what, what does this mean for us? I mean, the cross and the resurrection. Paul gets into this, and, and obviously we could be here for weeks on end, and, and honestly, this is the core of everything that we preach, the cross and the resurrection, because this is what's called the gospel. This has implications for everything in our lives. Romans 6, 4, Paul tells the Romans this. And I'm not going to get into water baptism, but he does say this. In Romans 6, 4, he says, let me back up to, to verse 3. He says, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that, listen to this, and I want you to underline this in your Bibles if you open to Romans 6, 3. He says, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just 
as, underline that, just as. Not kind of like, not it's a little similar here, but just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too, church, listen, we too may live a new life. We too, just as Christ raised from the dead, how real and how powerful is that? Just as that happened, we have received new life. Let me quickly paint this picture then. You were dead in your sins. You were in darkness, just like me. Jesus died on the cross, and when you chose to believe in him and follow him, the darkness was dispelled. Jesus' rescue plan was he came in at that moment and he pulled you out of darkness. He set you free from that sin so that you can live in freedom. He forgave you of all of your sins and he empowered you in this new life. And that is the very same resurrection power that we see here in which the stone has been rolled away so the ladies can go, where is this Jesus? Come and see. He is no longer here, the angel said. That same resurrection power rescued you. It, God breathed new life into you. As Jim was talking about in his spoken word about the Father breathing life into man. When you were born again, the Spirit of God took the resurrection power of the Father and breathed it into you. Go to, go to Ephesians chapter 1 now. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. Paul is now praying for these Ephesians. And, <coughs> excuse me. And as he's praying for them, he prays three things for them that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened, that they would understand this amazing inheritance that they have. And then, verse 19, and also that they would be able to grasp, know, intimately know, and therefore experience his incomparably, are you right there, verse 19, his incomparably great power for us who believe. That power, that power that he is praying, Father, allow them to know this power. That power is, can you just, if you have the NIV, can you put brackets around that next word, like? They are, that word is not in the Greek. So let me read it without it. That power is the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. It says later in chapter 2, and God raised us up with Christ. How? By his resurrection power. Because you were dead in your sins, verse 1 tells me. And he raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming ages, which would mean like today, in order that in the coming ages, he might show, show off, display the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. That, that is amazing grace. I once was blind, but now I see. That is amazing grace. The resurrection power that takes the cross and it applies it to us and it brings us to life. That's what we can all experience. So I want to just, I want to lay this challenge out to you. 
if you do not know Jesus, and then I'm going to wrap it up for those of you, us who did. If you don't know Jesus this morning, if you have never truly given him your heart, and by that I simply mean you surrender to him. You don't rely on your good works. Yeah, good luck with that, by the way. You don't rely on what you ever can do. It is only by what Christ has accomplished by the cross and resurrection, I now surrender my heart to him. For me, that was when I was 14. And this amazing thing happened in my life, in my darkness, I experienced the resurrection power of Christ. It changed me. The Bible says it actually made me born again. It actually breathed life into my dead spirit. It actually gave me a new hope. A new direction in life changed the way I think. It raised me up in newness of life. Paul says, you became a new creation. And so I am encouraging you, if you have never truly trusted in Christ and reached out and believed him, I'm going to challenge you, do that today. And do not let this moment go. God brought you here for a reason. And as we've been singing about the Resurrection of Jesus as Jim declared truthfully what Christ did for us. Don't leave here without saying, you know what, God? I am still lost in my darkness, and I desperately need you to rescue me. And the Bible says that he will come with his resurrection power, and he will transform you, and he will pull you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He'll transfer you. The Greeks actually is this concept of transplanting in Colossians 1.13. That's what he's going to do for you. He's going to take you out of where you're at in the darkness and the lostness and the sin that encrusts you and controls your life. And he's going to take you out and he's going to plant you in his new kingdom. And he's going to breathe life into you. So here's my challenge for those of us who believe already. Allow me this analogy. It is possible, even though we are saved, to allow darkness, Satan's lies, to be spoken over us, to us, even sometimes through loving parents speaking lies. And we can get caught up in these lies. And we can feel as if we are failures. We can feel as if, yeah, Pastor Mike, you're talking about this resurrection power, and, and I'm sorry, I, I just don't see it in my life right now. Have you ever been there? Maybe some of you, that's where you're at. And you're just wondering, okay, this, you, this is about the resurrection of Jesus. Where is that in my life right now? Now, do you remember in... Okay, follow me here. But in the Lord of the Rings, the two towers, the elf. Humor me here, come on. And Gandalf approaches the king of Rohan. What is it, Theoden? King Theoden, am I right on that? And Theoden, it, he, he can't see well. He can't think clearly. 
Now, let me stretch this analogy because that truly is a picture of someone who's lost in sin and rescued. But as Christians, sometimes these clouds of doubts and these fears and lies that we start believing, they can begin to cloud the picture. We can begin to doubt God and doubt our standing before God. And I was talking with someone just yesterday and saying, you know, sometimes... When we pray, it's really easy to feel like we just got to pray and pray and pray. And somehow if we pray enough, God will finally come through and we will earn the right to be heard. Isn't that true? Sometimes we can feel this way. We have to say, what? And we remember, though, the veil of the temple was torn by God from top to bottom. And he says, come, enter in. Your right standing, that never has changed. But as Christians, we can be like King Theoden, right? Okay, and we're just sitting there and, and we can't see straight. We're beginning to doubt God's love, which is really the focal point of Satan's attacks. And then, you remember Gandalf and he comes. And I can't remember what he says, but there is a power encounter at that moment that sets this man's free. His complexion changes. Everything about him changes. And I want to just speak some truth into your life this morning. That's where some of you are at right now. You feel as if you're in that darkness again. You feel the ugliness of that sin. And you are saved. And you have been, you're, you still have right standing before God. And he is inviting you now to embrace the truth. And God, by the power of Jesus' resurrection, wants to speak truth into your life so that you can be set free from that. That we would grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. And he is inviting you into this holy of holies again. And he's saying to you, the veil's been torn. Come in. See how much grace I will pour upon your life. See how much resurrection power is available to you if you would but ask me. Can you let him dispel the darkness right now? Can you let him just speak truth into your life situation in which the enemy has purposely, he has gone out of his way to discourage you and to speak lies and you've been believing them. Can you let Christ now speak to your heart? He came for your darkness and in that darkness, he himself died so that you would have full access to the Father. Always. The Father, in this sense of darkness that you're experiencing, even as a believer right now, he's calling you, come. And he's also saying, come and see. And he is wanting to remind you again that Jesus is no longer in the grave. Jesus has been raised from the dead. And that resurrection power is yours right now. Right now, in the midst of your situation, in the midst of your discouragement. So I'm going to close in prayer right now. We could dim the lights maybe. but Let's just be honest with God right now. Allow the Spirit of God to speak truth and encourage your hearts. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His truth never changes. The cross and the resurrection are here for us to live in and abide in, to walk in.
every moment of every day. Father, I just pray, God, that today, if there are any who are still lost in their sin, still lost in their darkness, wandering around, trying to find answers, I pray today, Spirit of God, that you would speak truth of the cross and resurrection to them and set them free. That your grace would break through to their hearts, Lord God. Open their eyes and allow them to see. So I'm just asking you, Father, by that same resurrection power that you used in raising Jesus from the dead, raise many now from the dead. Open their eyes as they trust in you, Jesus. Father, those of us who have been willingly deceived, being led astray by lies of the enemy, we can begin to feel this darkness surrounding us again. We're discouraged because we have taken our eyes off of Jesus. Speak again to us of the cross and resurrection. Speak again to us of your unfailing love, your pursuit of us, that you will never give up on us. And if we walk in the truth, we will be free. And that the very same resurrection power of God displayed on that third day is ours. Paul prayed it. I pray it for every single one of us here, God, that we would know this incomparable power for us who believe. And that that power would set us free from depression. That power would set us free from the fears that we're experiencing and the worries. It set us free from these rejections that we've been entertaining. Jesus, come right now. I ask you, Father, experiencing that darkness speak life and hope and bring us again into the light thank you Lord Jesus thank you that you were willing to do what you did for every single one of us. We were your enemies and we were deserving of nothing but punishment. But you loved us so much and you pursued us for so long. You finally won us. And you have given us this amazing gift. 